Check, check. Check, check. Uh, I, I don't even know where we should start. What kind of beer is that you're drinking? Okay, no. Czech Pilsner from Stone City in Kingston. Hmm. How is that? Is it good? It's really good. It's uh, a, a rare craft that actually, craft Pilsner or lager that doesn't taste too malty and is really crisp and clean. I'm drinking a clean cut Kolsch. I saw that. That's a good segue. That's another rare one that it's a little bit maltier though. I find. Yeah, it is. I find it different uh, when they pour it like on draft, but yeah, you it's know, also incredibly convenient because yeah. it's <laughs> the country country music headquarters is located directly in between three breweries. Yep. We have three craft breweries <laughs> around us, two blocks in one direction, two blocks in another direction and two blocks in another direction, <laughs> which is generally what we do after <laughs> we're the nexus point of a trifecta of craft beer, craft breweries. You know, uh, speaking of, yeah, you know who I think was drinking a little too much. (laughs) (laughs) I, uh, I read today that Sam Hunt got arrested in Nashville for drinking and driving. The amount of bodies and back roads and everything jokes that we could make, (laughs) not to make light of drinking and driving. Yeah, obviously. But yeah. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Um, what I, was, are, I, I don't know anything about this other than you started to tell me this earlier and we got cut off. What's, what's the details? I told you the extent of what I know. I didn't have a chance to, uh, I don't even know. It's popped up somewhere on one of I think maybe I saw it on Instagram or something like someone had posted it, but I didn't read into it cause I think I was just getting ready to come here. Mm-hmm. But, uh, I was curious like when rich, cause he's gotta be rich, right? Sam Hunt's rich. I would assume. Oh yeah. That first record. <laughs> like why just get someone to drive you around why are you driving your vehicle around because he's keeping it country man <laughs> he don't need no driver or take an uber or take a limo who is he or... reba <laughs> i don't think i'd ever drive again if i was rich <laughs> oh i would yeah think of the cars you could have yeah I, i'm just not that into cars oh i am think of the trucks you could have yeah, that's true <laughs> <laughs> I would not drive them drunk, and I don't recommend that anybody else does. Yeah. As your PSA from... That's right. Our laughing at this situation <laughs> is in no way an endorsement of drinking and driving. Uh, what else happened since we last did this? It was the CMAs. Yeah. That was a lot a lot to digest there. Mm-hmm. Uh, most notably, we are very excited about the latest Musician of the Year winner, Miss... Oh, Janae Fleener. That's right. And we were saying it wrong before. We're very sorry, Oh, and I'm Janae. still saying it wrong. <laughs> no, no, you. I think you said it right. I think I did the soft J like the French way. Oh, Janae. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Didn't we do that with uh, Catherine? We learned uh, Le, yeah. Legender, but it, we were calling we were doing Legendre. Legendre. Yeah. That's the French in us. Sorry. Yeah, it's true. The uh, <laughs> We're, we're, we're ne- very near the border of Quebec, so <laughs> there's a lot of uh, franglais that makes it <laughs> into here. Well, who are we looking, kidding? Looking at anything <laughs> that it, it, it's historically a French name. It has to be the way it's spelled. Yeah. I, we actually uh, had little uh, Instagram back and forth about her name. And apparently, phonetically, it's spelled Le Gin, like the drink, Legendre. So, okay. Leg, or Legender. Legender. That's right. So, we won't make that mistake again. <laughs> I wonder, I'd like to hear from our American listeners if they pick up on our just general Canadian accents. Well, what she said was it was Americanized the way that she's saying it. But yeah, you know, I I feel like we speak in a pretty non-regional diction. (laughs) Yeah, uh, maybe. But you never know until an actual, uh, like someone from another country listens to you. Yeah. 
Yeah, and everyone says like the oot and the boot and everything, but it's like <laughs> it's more of like a Wisconsin thing. Yeah, than come on, anything. hey bud. Yeah. <laughs> oh, hey there, bud. <laughs> and then you get a very East Coastness out of you. Um, but yeah. yeah, Janae takes it home. That was amazing. Uh, we were rooting for her equally, if not slightly more than. Well, I can't speak for Sean, but my pedal steel god, who are we are going to talk a lot about today on today's episode. Yeah, nice segue. Yeah, look <laughs> at that. Paul Franklin was also up for musician of the year, which apparently, and I read this in Rolling Stone, so I feel like they fact check their shit, but. He, they said in the same article where they mentioned Janae Fleener was up for the first time, um, music, a dual distinction, first time being um, nominated and also the first woman ever nominated. So they mentioned that Paul Franklin was also uh, first time nominated. And I, I, I don't know. I can't believe that. Like he's been around so long and on so many records. No, that's incorrect. First time nominated musician of the year? Yeah. No, he's won it like. A ton of I thought so. Yeah. And uh, Rolling Stone said he was also first time nominated. Like Brent Mason, who we're also going to talk about, he has it like 12 times or more. And so Paul Franklin is like the Brent Mason of steel guitar. Did you fact check that? Uh, I no. I think I Googled it quickly, but couldn't find anything and just was like, wow, that's interesting if Rolling Stone's saying that. Um. Maybe it was what I read was nominations because it's like, well, that's what it said was he was first time nominated. Oh, no. So I'm looking at his nominations here and it's like CMA 2019, 2018, 17, 16, 15, 14 for musician of the year. Yeah. (laughs) I don't think there's one year in the last. uh, Oh, I don't know what the hell he was doing in 2007. He must have really been slacking. He was on vacation that year. (laughs) Nobody put out a country record in 2007. <laughs> that was sad. the year Bro Country took over. <laughs> a sad, sad year for country music. Yeah. 2007. It was the dark ages. <laughs> yeah, uh, it looks like he's been nominated very like since 1989 almost every year. Yeah, so we are not at all sad that he didn't get it and Janae deserved it. Because really, that fiddle line, the opening fiddle line of heartache medication, like, shit, we've talked about this too much, but like that... That is country, country music. Like Listen, that's a definition. <laughs> Let me put it this way: if that was the only track she played on all year, she still would have deserved this award. I agree, hundred <laughs> percent. Yeah. Cheers. To I that. don't. Yeah, cheers. <laughs> I do not care about Blake Shelton and Cody Johnson and everything else. Well, I do because that's awesome. But like that one song alone could yeah. have won this. <laughs> Anyways, uh, Jenny. Sorry for pronouncing it Jenny last time. We won't make that mistake again either. But uh, some interesting, potentially BS, depending on how you choose to look at it, Garth Brooks winning Entertainer of the Year again for seven, eight times? Yeah, he didn't entertain me once in the last, I don't know how many years. Yeah, I don't get it. Like, I specifically don't get it for the last year because I looked at some of the stats of what he did and... Uh, I meant to dig into this too because I, I, I again I saw another episode, another news article that maybe we'll do it in a country catch up. It was uh, Bobby Bones uh, defending why Garth Brooks won it, but I didn't have a chance to dig into it. But we'll circle back to that. Oh yeah, but yeah, the stats he didn't. I just feel like he didn't do enough to to win that award. Well, you might not know the stats. That might be what's in the Bobby Bones thing you're referencing because he he put on some like major major like stadium 
concerts. But only a handful. I don't know. I feel like I heard about a whole bunch happening. What's a whole bunch? I don't know. I guess, okay, let me put it this way. Um, and he's also doing that dive bars tour with who? Um, it's not Blake Shelton. Is it Blake Shelton? I don't know. He's doing like stadiums and they did dive a song bars. together too, right? Yes, that's right. It is the two of them because they do that song. That, and that's a song that like had a, like on paper, I feel like it's awesome and is destined to be a hit. And I don't know. I don't feel like they really pulled it off. Like it could have been a way better song. I guess stat wise, I mean more if you compare his stats with stats of the other ca- of the other artists in the category of Entertainer of the Year. That's when it starts to be like he's got like such a small amount in comparison to the other artists that were nominated. Right, and it's, it's something that like trying to look at it more objectively. Like I do not like Carrie Underwood whatsoever um, as music. Like she's great and like a great ambassador for music and seems lovely but I, I don't play any of her music it's like too mainstream pop for me but considering she is a major player in the arena and the kind of show she's been putting on and what she's been doing in the last year the cry pretty to her and everything like i was pretty sure it was going to be her i was hoping for eric church because mm-hmm. he's been doing some crazy good like three hour shows yeah i would have been good like, with either of them yeah and it's because it, it's entertainer of the year, right? It's, it's Yeah. Neither of us actually expected Garth to get it. You were no. expecting Carrie. I was expecting Eric. Yeah. That's on Twitter. <laughs> yeah. Did, oh, yeah. You posted that? Yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, that's kind of crazy. I just sounded like I was also 72 years old. It was on the Twitter. <laughs> on the Twitter machine. <laughs> um, well, should we dive into it? Yeah. I think this is going to be... Uh, We've been talking about this episode about the the players for a long time. I'm excited to do it. It was a fun one to research, that's for sure. Okay, so as Sean briefly mentioned earlier, today we are going to be talking about the players, uh, this group of Nashville session musicians who were recently inducted into the Musicians Hall of Fame. Um, So we're going to have a little rundown on that. Then we're going to talk about each of them individually. And then at the end, we're going to do something we haven't done before. We're going to play some of their tracks and we're going to point out because I, I don't know if everybody is as geeky as we are or as interested in all of these things. But from some of the feedback we've been getting on the podcast is that uh, geeky is good. So we're going to dissect these things a little bit. And I don't know if everybody knows who these players are, what their parts sound like. You've heard these before. I know you have on the radio and you'll be like, oh, that's all Brent Mason. I now understand his style. I can pick out like what those 90s songs are because he very much, and Paul Franklin as well, all these guys like created a genre essentially or musically a component of the genre. And so we're going to play some of these tracks and point out what's going on, who's playing where, and so we can kind of bring context to like the massive importantness these people brought to it brought to country music and so we just ask that hopefully the record companies and whoever aren't too upset about this we're using it for educational conversational critical purposes uh so that's why we're going to do it at the end that in case we get any kind of cease and desist or take that down uh, letters that we can just crop off the end of the show and we'll just essentially talk all the way through it so if you're listening to this down the road and there is no music at the end, that's what's happened. But uh, for now, we hope that uh, we'll be able to use this and everybody can 
um, understand really what, at least at a very basic level um, or a basic level of understanding from major radio hits, what the players brought to country music. It's a sweet legal disclaimer. (laughs) (laughs) On that note, you want to get into it? Yeah, let's do it. Country. Country music. So, the Players were formed in 2002 by drummer Eddie Bears. Uh, they were aptly named as such because they've played with basically, uh, well, everybody. Um, they consist of the I thought it was because they were infamous womanizers. <laughs> That's a different uh, group. Yeah. <laughs> oh, the other Players. <laughs> I wonder how, there. I bet you there's probably other groups called the Players. Probably, yeah. For the record, I don't actually think they are massive womanizers. I think they're all... <laughs> upstanding gentlemen who are married happily married and one uh, based on their resumes i don't understand how any one of these gentlemen would even be able to entertain the idea of being a womanizer because i don't know where they'd find the time to do it (laughs) yeah seriously (laughs) so uh the players consisted of the aforementioned drummer uh, eddie bears uh, who's played from everybody from the beach boys to garth brooks to peter frampton uh paul franklin who is a multi-instrumentalist that is best known for playing steel guitar uh like we said earlier, he's been nominated for uh, CMA Musician of the Year so many times that it would probably take the rest of the podcast to uh, discuss all of that. John Hobbs, uh, he's the keys player of the group. Um, he started off in L.A. where he's toured uh, with Kenny Rogers, Frankie Lane. Uh, he's also r- written some really awesome TV theme songs that I'm going to get into a little bit later when we oh, talk yeah? about them. Yeah, some, I have no idea about this. I can't wait to see that. And then uh, one of your favorites. I uh, love when we do research separately. Yeah, right? <laughs> Because then sometimes we come to the same uh, like intersection of stuff, and then other times we just it stuffs out of left field. Because it all depends what you look at, right? Exactly. I have no TV intersection on this conversation, <laughs> so I'm looking forward to this. Yeah, there's some funny stuff in there. And then yeah, one of your favorites, uh, Brent Mason. He's I think one of the most prolific members of the Players. Uh, one of the most gu- recorded uh, guitarists in history, having played on well over a thousand albums. And really doesn't look like he's showing any signs of uh, letting up at this point in his career. I think he's slowed down a little bit, but yeah. we'll, uh, for good reason. We'll we'll talk about that a bit later. And then the last member, but not least, would be bassist Michael Rhodes. Uh, and he kind of rounds out this impressive lineup that uh, makes up the players. So before we go too, too uh, in-depth into the careers and the history of these guys, um, Andrew, you mentioned it kind of off the cuff when we were sort of chatting about doing this episode. What's that? Um, well, you were drawing some pretty strong parallels to other groups of musicians that we've discussed in some oh, of the our... Oh, the A-Team. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so I wanted to talk a little bit about that. And then as well as that, uh, you had mentioned uh, the Wrecking Crew as well, which uh, right. would be another fun thing to talk about. Maybe we don't have to get too in-depth on these things, but... Well, a good little preamble for anybody listening who doesn't know what we're talking about is... Go back to, I forget what episode it is, maybe it's around 15 or so, uh, where we did um, we, we did a three-series uh, little mini history on uh, the Nashville sound, the Bakersfield sound, and the outlaw movement. And in the Nashville sound, there's quite a lot of conversation around what was then called the Nashville A-Team, these session musicians that were pretty much on everything and a similar phenomenon was happening in California with the wrecking crew that was on almost every California pop rock song from the 60s onward 
Uh, so you, you get in, in the session world, you get these groups of prolific musicians that are so good. They kind of just end up on all the same tracks together, catering their sound to every different artist. And, uh, yeah, just recently the players got inducted into the musicians hall of fame. So just one thing I, I did find like a little bit different between these these well the one thing i didn't know was that eddie bears was actually considered part of the a team as well and he kind of from there moved uh to starting the players in 2002 which is so much He's later been on around that long that's wild yeah. and then when i started digging into people's disc- discographies or credits whatever you want to call it um man some of these guys go back really far but then uh, it's also they're such a tight-knit group um the players like in terms of the numbers like there's so what we're talking about five people today um and uh you look at the a team at any given time 17 plus different members right um you look at the wrecking crew i think it was if not i, I would actually think a lot more than that no um, no 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 the wrecking crew was not like more than 17 people uh well, what have I got here? Uh, at any given time, uh, leading musicians who remembers uh, Earl Palmer, Barney Kessel. Uh, I'm just going to butcher all these. I should just count them. It looks like I would say a similar amount of really? players. Yeah. And then... I felt was, like, at least in the documentary, I felt like there was like I wonder seven. if maybe they focused on some of the main... Yeah, um, probably. And this is all the tertiary guys as well. Right. Or secondary, whatever you want to call it. Um the Hal Blaine, the drummer from this group, this is a crazy fact. Not from he wasn't in the players; he was part of the Wrecking Crew. Uh, he's played on over thirty-five thousand tracks. Isn't that wow? Absolutely unbelievable. I d- wait. Say the, the the bass player, the drummer, the drummer from the Wrecking Crew played on over thirty-five thousand tracks. And I was trying to do the math because, yeah, when I, I was I, looking at this, just blown my mind. Like, how does that even work per year? Well, I guess no. That that makes sense. Well, because if you're a heavy session player it'd be easy enough to do a thousand tracks a year and if you have a career that spans 35 years like that's that's pretty doable yeah and then i it blew my mind it still is kind of blowing my mind because it's a lot more even when i did the math but looking at some of the players and i would say most of their album credits come in around between like a thousand to like let's call it 1300 1400 albums so if they played on every track in those albums times that yeah that's thirty thousand. yeah well not quite, but it's getting there. And then if you put in all the other singles and other stuff they did, all of those guys have had at least a thirty-year career. Yeah, so they're all probably up. So like if you have twenty thousand plus, yeah, if you if if you play on every track, or more or less, on what you have an album credit on, it, it could be. Yeah, you could easily be in that zone. Could you imagine just the sheer? You you've forgotten more tracks that you've played on than most people ever will play on. <laughs> most musicians will ever play yeah. on in a lifetime. That's crazy. <laughs> or that most people will listen to in a lifetime. Yeah. Like I, I, I have am, you listened to 35,000 different songs in your life? I don't, you know, that's, I, there's no way I can answer that question, but I'm I've someone counted. who's listening. I know how <laughs> I've been watching. Yeah. Um, I, I've like, I listen to music pretty much all day from the second I get up till the second I go to bed. Mm. And, but I don't brand, I'm not always listening to different music. So yeah, I would say it's probably unlikely that I've mm. listened to 35,000 yeah. different tracks. Anyways, we digress. Well, this is the nerdy, this is what I've, this is the sheer numbers here is yeah. wild for these guys. And this is when I really started to research it and, it just every 
every new fact I stumbled upon just uh, sent me for another loop. And then I, I think I said it to you yesterday, the day before. I said, you know, we could do an episode on every member, like a single episode, an entire on each episode member. on each person for yeah. sure. <laughs> so welcome to the five part. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> we're going to try not turn this into a two part. <laughs> so buckle up because we're going to be here for a little bit. <laughs> all right. Um, is that all you have to say about that? Yeah. What else you got? Uh, I don't, I, you know, I didn't think it was really worth I'm just trying to usher us on here. Yeah. And, Cause I, I had more, but I don't want to miss any of your good info. <laughs> no, I, I, I feel like the wrecking crew kind of interests me a lot, but it has nothing, a lot of it has nothing to do with country music. So I think just to keep things in bounds here yeah. or on side, we'll it has zero to do with country music, but it's yeah. a super cool documentary. It used to be on Netflix. I, I looked recently, uh, ahead of this. Yeah, it's not I, on the one more. No, it's not but I'm sure you can find it somewhere else. It's not on Amazon Prime either, the other thing I have. Or it's not on Disney Plus either, <laughs> the thing that Amelia recently <laughs> got. So I don't know where you're going to find it, but it's a pretty popular documentary, so you can definitely find it online somewhere. Well, here's my only fact I'll throw out there about The Wrecking Crew because it ties back into some stuff I wanted to bring up about the players. Is that um, These guys played on a whole bunch of TV scores as well. Uh, the theme from The Twilight Zone, Green Acres, Bonanza, MASH, Batman, Mission Impossible, and Hawaii Five-0. Batman and Bonanza. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> I can't think of what the Hawaii Five-0 theme was. I have no idea. Well, yeah, it's pretty cool as far as like old cop shows go. Hmm. I'm more of a Magnum PI kind of guy. It's it's like that, but earlier. All right. Huh. All right. <laughs> as I derail us, <laughs> as, as we're both kind of like staring off into the <laughs> sky. Oh, Hawaii Five-0. So I thought I'd get us started uh, with Eddie Bears. Which, Good call. Because I mean, he's the, the guy, guy who ties started, everything right? together. Yeah. He's Do it. The, he's the glue. So uh, yeah, as I said earlier, Eddie Bears. Um, he's the one who who basically took the credit for forming the players, um, branching out from being a member of the A team. Um, so he was born in. Pawtuxent River. I'm probably butchering that. Maryland. Uh, his father was um, and bear with me for a second here. Uh, his father was a naval fighter pilot during World War II. He's credited with the longest dogfight in that war. He also fought at Iwo Jima in the Marshall Islands, the Coral Sea, and the infamous Battle of Midway. Wow, we need to do an episode just on his dad, right? <laughs> and the only reason I'm going through this is because, man, I've been nerding out hard on that Dan Carlin's Hardcore History uh, podcast. I and have no idea what that is. Dan Carlin. Oh wait, I do. You told me about. Yeah, this. I haven't listened to it yet though. I am. Uh, I think I'm 18 hours into a five-part series on World War One. <laughs> it's like I'm such a nerd at this point in my life. <laughs> yeah. It, it, but, you know, I'll tell you, it kind of inspired me to do my research for this episode. <laughs> Good. <laughs> Anyways, uh, if you, yeah, check out that Dan Carlin podcast, Hardcore History. It's, it's really awesome. Check so, out. Uh, yeah. So, Eddie Bears, um, he was actually a classically trained pianist. and uh, Also percussion. Yeah. But Technically. True, I guess. Yep. Um, there's some cool facts here when, uh, he started jamming with, and this is, I quote, local musicians such as Jerry Garcia and John Fogarty. <laughs> <laughs> was that like, is that a tongue in cheek comment or is that before they were famous? It was before they were famous. Oh, okay. I guess it's where he grew up. Neighborhood right? fellows. <laughs> <laughs> Neighborhood roughnecks. Yeah. Uh, roastabouts. Um, but yeah. I've he... never heard that term before. <laughs> <laughs> I've thrown all the old timey terms I know out there. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, he was jamming with, uh, Jerry Garcia, John Fogarty. And then, uh, and uh, this is kind of a common theme with some of these guys is that the session work on the West coast was really starting to dry up. 
And uh, because I think that has to do with where that music scene was going. It was more band-driven, which right. we also talked about in uh, the Bakersfield episode where it was becoming more, less session, more actual bands, right? right? Um, so that kind of work was drying up. Um, and this is where sort of the soundtrack thing came in because obviously California, all movies and TV shows and all that stuff. So there's lots of work for session players and stuff like that. But he was way more interested in like the creative side of things. Um, which is what led him to uh, start traveling to Nashville and, and sort of getting his feet wet there. And eventually he moved there. And uh, he st- was auditioning for to be a piano player at this club f- with a quartet. And the drummer, Larry London, who I don't know who this person is, but he's apparently an extremely famous drummer, uh, inspired him to play drums professionally. So from there, he established himself as one of uh, the top studio drummers in Nashville. Uh, the list of artists he worked on, worked with his out of this world, like Vince Gill, George Strait, Alan Jackson, Jackson, Steve Winwood, Peter Frampton, Bob Seger, Trisha Yearwood, Garth Brooks, Kenny Chesney, Willie Nelson. It goes on and on and on wow. forever. Like, I'm What's sure some you, of the early stuff you said he was from the 1960s. Like, what? 68. His recording span from, or his credits span from 68 to 2019. 68. Okay, not 60. 68. Okay. Yeah. But. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's it's wild, the scope of some of these guys. Like, he's played on over 1,100 albums. Um, hundreds, of them, hundreds of them went gold and platinum. Uh, he's won a ton of awards, too. He won Academy I mean, of Country Music Drummer of the Year for 11 straight years. Wow. Yeah. And so, and they're all unionized. So, the way that works, and I don't know the specifics on it, but I've read a little bit about it. And it's a pretty cool system that, <clears throat> like, these guys, they can retire. They're not just like a musician that's making some cash under the table. And then when they get to a certain age, they're still struggling. Like they, I don't know if they have like a, a, a technical official pension, but I think they do some, something along the lines of that, where like these guys that are making, I would assume they'd be making some kind of residuals from major like gold platinum records that they were on and being part of union I feel like these guys are doing pretty all right that they can like retire pretty comfortably. Well, and I think we'll probably get into it more when we talk about Brent Mason, but I'm assuming because some, I didn't do a ton on him because I know, I mean, you're, you're a wealth of knowledge on him, but I think he's I didn't a, even have to research this. Yeah. So <laughs> I think he's a huge, huge proponent of that union stuff. And mm-hmm. I, that's some of the reading I did because it interested me because I had no idea it even existed. And yeah, it's wild that, there that existed for them that's so cool that that was a thing for a session musician like that was a regular that was a day job yeah you know yeah well talk about it in the same way like you wake up you go to some sessions you yeah. meet at eight o'clock pound out like two sessions come back for one at two o'clock or something like that and that's your day yeah but then uh, the other thing though was all these guys had their night jobs too which was going and playing uh live shows right <laughs> also maybe we should say right now i i, I realize we probably should have done this in the intro but for anybody listening who doesn't know what we're talking about um like what is session players because when we're talking about like alan jackson songs george Strait songs i think a lot of people think they play those songs themselves or all the music themselves or their band does or the band that you see on stage when you see them in concert does i have a i have a interesting anecdote where uh like side note i grew up like in a country listening household uh, mostly because of my dad and then through like teenage years and everything becoming very 
rebellious and forget country. I want to listen to rock and hip hop and everything. But also being in a band and learning to play guitar, I was interested in who was doing these riffs and these licks and everything. And so looking at the liner notes of everything and looking to liner notes of country that was still very much, like I liked it, uh, even when I was rebelling against it and existing in, in the world of it, um, we, I, I would see that Red Hot Chili Peppers was all of the people in the band get the credit for that. Mm-hmm. The same people you see on tour. But Alan Jackson and George Strait, they get like a vocalist or composer type of credit. And then there's this long list of like other guitarists and everything. You're like, what's going on with this? I remember uh, in university, when uh, my life turned almost entirely to sports and completely away from music, had this uh, great Les Paul that I lent to my barber because I wasn't using it at all. And he was learning to play guitar and he was very much in like a blues rock type of wheelhouse. So we would always catch up on what he was playing every time I was getting a haircut. And eventually a couple of years down the road, because he had it for a good like four or five years, and uh, he he knew I always loved country, and he started talking. We had something else to talk about. He was like, "Man, really started getting into country playing." He's like, "I had no idea. Like Alan Jackson's got to be the get- best guitarist of all time." <laughs> like, uh, I see what you're saying and where you're going with that. And yes, but no. <laughs> Uh, the guy who played on Alan Jackson's record would definitely be one of the best guitarists of all time, but it's definitely not Alan Jackson. And so explaining like the idea that there's these session players that get hired to essentially custom build you songs for your records that they then teach or teach to your road band or your road band just knows what's going on and can learn it themselves. And then you take it from there. You know, it's funny too, I, I, I can't, it's somewhere buried in, in my research here, but it was in some interview I read with one of the guys from the players, but he was talking about how also a lot of these session players never got credit at all on some of these albums way back when. Yeah, they'd get straight cash and then that's it. Yeah, and yeah. that was, and I think maybe maybe it was part of this union stuff that I was reading and, and that's how that started to come about is like, yeah, these guys would just take straight cash. It didn't matter if the song sold 10 copies or 10,000 copies. Mm-hmm they got their hundred bucks or their 50 mm-hmm. bucks or their whatever. And they didn't even show up on the, on the credits. All right. Well, I guess we'll wrap up on, uh, on Eddie bears. Um, the only thing I wanted to say is like, I, I thought there was some cool notable albums that he's played on here. And I, I touched on a few from the very beginning, a few from the middle and a few towards, uh, his more recent career. So, I mean, he was on Does Fort Worth Ever Cross Your Mind, George Strait, Love Me Like You Used To, Tanya Tucker, A Man Called Hoss, Waylon Jennings, which is a really cool, well, and Jennings record, if you ever che- want to check one out, uh, Stardust by Willie Nelson, which is, uh, I, I wouldn't say it's my favorite Willie Nelson record, but it's my favorite Willie Nelson album cover. <laughs> Man, I was about to say, does Fort Worth ever cross your mind? That might be, it's really hard to pick, but it might be my all time favorite George Strait record, like album, there not necessarily is... a favorite song, but if I had to have one like LP for like only one more of George Strait Ooh. forever. It m- and that's a hard choice, but it might be that one. It's a hot take. That's a hot straight talk take. <laughs> <laughs> Say that five times fast. <laughs> um, I, all, that's, that album's going to come up a bit more because as I talk about these notable albums, I think most of these guys were on that album. A good chunk of them anyways. Paul Franklin was not. No. And neither was Brent Mason, but 
Um, two to three out of. <laughs> yeah. Was Eddie Bear Bears on that? Yeah. And so was. Because that's what we're talking about right now. And um, yeah. And so was um, John Hobbs. John Hobbs, yeah. Uh, Michael Rhodes, I don't think so. Okay. But he didn't, I don't think he was on much straight. Uh, yeah, that's the tricky thing about these guys where and the songs we're trying to collect to point them out is I'm sure there is a whole bunch of songs where they're all on it together, but of the music we listened to and dove into and tried to cross-reference yeah. all music credits and everything, there couldn't find a ton where they're all together. Rather, you know, pick out songs that really showcase each or two at a time individually. Well, in the nature of how we, we kind of split up the research too and, and we would have had one of those big boards going where we were like taking it back and forth but yeah another was, charlie yeah <laughs> charlie from always sunny always sunny yeah yeah uh nine to five dolly parton don't rock the jukebox alan jackson and then some of the more recent stuff just uh that willie and merle album django and jimmy he was on as oh, well yeah? so yeah cool. pretty varied career there and uh so yeah wh- who do you want to talk about who are you thinking um well i'm going to talk about paul franklin and brent mason but feel like Paul Franklin would be best to do first. I agree. Because it kind of sets up Brent Mason coming into the scene as well, too. So Paul Franklin uh, was born in 1954 in Detroit. His family had moved up there from southern Tennessee after the Great Depression, uh, just like many people looking for work. And the uh, Motor City was booming, and that was really, I don't know, the, the capitalism heart of America. Everybody could find work there. And so uh, he he had a very musical family, apparently. Uh, he was His dad was like the youngest of like, I don't know, 12 or something brothers. So there was a lot of uh, uncles and cousins who were older than him and played instrument instruments. And he uh, ended up starting to play steel guitar because his parents uh, essentially pushed it on him. And there, because there was no normal instruments left to play because everyone else in the family was playing banjo, guitar, drums, fiddle, all the cool (laughs) instruments were taken. So it's like he was out taking a piss when the instruments were being handed out. He got stuck with a steel guitar. Burden of being the youngest to get all the secondhand, all the old stuff nobody wants. That's right. (laughs) But at the time, steel guitars were new. So it's, it's, uh, it, it, Actually, in terms of the world of instruments, steel guitar is incredibly new. There, there, there's a way where people think of it as an old-school, antiquated instrument because you really, I think, classically associate it with like old-school country. But it was brand new at the time. And in terms of like basses, guitars, pianos, everything, like that thing was invented in the ni- in the 1900s, in the 1930s, 40s, 50s, like pedals in the 50s. So it's 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 a new instrument, anyways. Because of that, it wasn't super accessible, and and, and finding them, uh, his dad built one for him, and uh, his uncle apparently had some kind of a machine shop, so his dad was able to go over there and uh, wing it together, and he started taking uh, steel guitar lessons from a lap steel uh, Oahu method, which is a Hawaiian-style teacher, and she didn't play pedal steel, but the fund- fundamentals were all the same. And in an interview I heard with Paul, he said that uh, she was going to teach him what he needed to know, not necessarily what he wanted to know. Hmm. And that would, uh, quote unquote, uh, teach him how to teach himself. And apparently that really worked. He's super fond of her, uh, what, what she did with him. And he quickly started learning and advancing uh, hugely. 
And by 10 years old, he was sitting in with bands and honky-tonks, local honky-tonks playing along and uh, getting shuffled out of the bar when bar fights break out and trying to keep him a little sheltered from what the hardcore honky-tonk lifestyle was. And a funny little note, by 11, he even got to sit in and back up Johnny Paycheck. And you... I don't think you really often think of Detroit as a uh, country music town, but country music exists everywhere in North America, especially in rural areas. And uh, well, at the time up there, all the, the factories and everything, everybody was moving north, right? Because well, exactly. there was work there. So. Totally. That's what I was about to say. Sorry if I just bit on your... <laughs> no, no. That's exactly what I was about to say, is like, especially in places where... Um, working class people have migrated to like Detroit. Everyone moved up for the auto industry. So he got his big break playing in Barbara Mandrell's band, uh, who actually fun note herself is a pedal steel player, but she was emerging as a vocal artist and young Paul Franklin quit his last year or last year or two, or I don't know, end part of his high school, uh, to go on the road with her. Uh, apparently that was a bit of a fight with his parents, but uh, he promised to finish via correspondence, and I think he did. But uh, this was his first foray into Nashville and the professional scene um, because he always knew he wanted to be a session player. He was the same kind of guy that was all about reading liner notes, who was playing on what, and saw that as a bit of the long game and the opportunities like this to go on the road with a big emerging artist, I think he saw as kind of his college or learning the ropes. That I learned that uh, the Barbara Mandrell playing steel thing too through this research. I had no idea. Uh, it was a really cool thing that I learned through this. And then I also learned that like, he that steel that his father made him, he played up until he was like 17. Oh yeah. Like, that's such a cool story. <clears throat> well, his, his dad ended up like working for Showbud and because of these guitars because he modeled it after the that that model i guess and they're probably like well hell <laughs> yeah i i can't remember which podcast it was if i remember if it comes to me i'll um post it somewhere but there was a really good interview with him and they go through a lot of his history and he was talking about how that all came to be and what one of the things was that there was a lot of mail order catalogs happening at the time so like there was door-to-door salesmen going around trying to sell lap steel Hawaiian method lessons. And that's how Lloyd Green and all kinds of people got into it because apparently at that time, that's right around when like Hawaii was coming on board or was already on board recently. There there, there was a big Hawaii thing (laughs) in like the 40s, 50s, 60s as like this new state and, and, and the coolness about it. And so there was a real panache to like slidey, twangy, Hawaiian style lap steel without pedals. And um, when, when, when he started into that and then pedals started to come around, his dad built him a pedal steel and had all this experience essentially like home craft making pedal steels. He started to work for Showbud. And I don't know how long he worked there, but it was a while. And after that, he branched off to start their own brand, Franklin. Like Franklin makes, it, it's, a, it's a brand of pedal steel guitars. They're one of the most expensive there is now uh, because they stopped production. I think, I think he died. Or if he hasn't died, oh, I don't want to have said he's died if he hasn't yet. But if not, he's, he is old and retired and they do not make pedal steels anymore. But... Um, 
yeah you you can fi- find them online for like excessive amounts of excessive money. amounts <laughs> yeah like double triple other like good pedal steels and I'm, I'm 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 not sure i've never played one i don't know if it's actually that good or if it's just more of a nostalgic kind of nostalgic and rare and connected with his name as one of the best ever that i don't know but so paul plays some old show buds uh he also plays franklin's most of the time i think you can see him on a franklin when he's doing something live but um yeah so he um got his big break with barbara mandrell and then when he got to nashville he already had a bunch of contacts there people like Pete Drake that he had met through being on the road or people coming through Detroit. And, uh, he's just seems like such a humble, like do it yourself. Like don't ask for any favors, pull yourself up by your bootstraps kind of guy. He didn't even reach out to them. And apparently the Pete Drake found out like two years into his time at Nashville, like what the hell you didn't call me kind of thing. (laughs) What have you been doing here? And, uh, and and I think there he he was having like a young family. His wife was there, and uh, they were like struggling to get by. And so his wife took a job with Pete Drake as I don't know, essentially his his administrative assistant, like booking sessions and things like that. And uh, they they didn't try to take advantage of that and pull more sessions towards Paul, as like I think many people would try to opportunistically do. But instead. Uh, Pete was throwing more sessions towards him, things that he was already very established at the time and like didn't need and thought Paul was a great player and started apparently like handing off sessions to him to do instead. But some of it, what I I read, some of it was uh, like he was giving him some advertising jingles and things like that. So I I don't think it was like, I think it was a bit rough at first. Um, Yeah, a story that I heard was uh, he he was in a session at a studio. Pete was in a session at a studio and said, Hey, I think there's something wrong with my steel. Can you come down here and check it out? And I think that's because his dad was building them or something. Yeah. So he, he had a technical knowledge of these and, uh, he was like, here, just get on there and, and play with it. Uh, do, do that thing you were doing the other day <laughs> kind of thing. Like ju- just see if it's working. And he was oblivious and was like actually <laughs> trying to work this out and see. And so he kind of backs out of the studio room and <laughs> those listening in the control room, uh, are seeing what's going on and he's playing like some, some great, I don't know, licks, some stuff. I don't know what was going on, but he was playing. And then, uh, I guess he presses back on the talk back and is like, yeah, it's, kind of a yeah the steel's fine uh i don't know what you're talking about and they're like okay then uh, are you ready to go he's <laughs> like do, you just hear the, the click of the lock on the door yeah 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 and it's like oh i'm not doing this oh pete left he's not feeling well uh he said you're gonna fill in <laughs> that's gold so, that's a good story yeah so i think that um he he got there and like it, it was a, a different time in nashville it was a lot smaller and a more tight-knit community and uh, he, he really got a lot of face time and hanging out with his heroes like Lord Lloyd Green, Buddy Emmons, Weldon Myrick, and obviously Pete Drake. And uh, slowly building more and more sessions to the point where um, he's one of the most recorded steel players of all time, particularly in the last like 30 years. Uh, interestingly, in a, another interview I uh, heard when he was asked to name some of the acts he's recorded for he jokingly replied that well it's probably easier to name the acts that he hasn't recorded with um and like most famously it's 
all of like George Strait, Alan Jackson, Shania Twain, like the major, major records of the nineties. And, um, if you name any big act, he's probably been the steel on it. Uh, some notable exceptions, however, uh, are Garth Brooks, Brooks and Dunn, uh, Reba McIntyre. And I know this because I love that steel player as well, who played with all of those guys, uh, a fella named Bruce Boughton, who is amazing as well. Not quite as recorded and prolific as uh, Paul Franklin, but way up there, and particularly in um, top epic tracks of the of the 1990s. He played Franklin played like quite a bit on the road too, right? Like I I read that he was with Jerry Reed's band for a while. Oh, in the early days, yes. But as as soon as well, the way I understand it, as soon as session stuff started, he was a much more comfortable life, obviously. Yeah, and I think that's what he always wanted to do. And sessions were rolling in, so he didn't want to compromise, like losing the sessions to go on the road. Yeah, I, I think it was more in the early days, like you said. He, you know, he hit the road with Jerry Reed, and like then all of a sudden, Smoking the Bandit comes out, explodes as a movie, and then Jerry Reed, you know, explodes as well. And then all of a sudden, he's playing in front of I don't know, probably twenty thousand people, yeah. coming from just a, a road touring guy, and then. Yeah. Uh, probably really adds something to your credibility, right? And then you come back to Nashville after a successful tour like that, and then it's like all of a sudden the work's probably just, or the offers are probably just pouring in. Yeah, well, yeah, absolutely. And I think that's kind of what happened with Barbara Mandrell as well, too. Like yeah, his, that makes sense. His first big start, like she was, she was a big name as that came out, and he was with her. And then uh, I don't know what the timeline is of when all this happened, but. Um, I don't have a timeline on this one either, but I have a, speaking of Jerry Reed, I, I don't remember where I found this in the research, but it was a funny kind of quote from Jerry Reed. Um, I guess he had uh, he'd been trying to get a hold of uh, of Paul Franklin forever and to try and get him to do some sessions, and then finally he reaches the guy, invites him over for dinner, and then he pulls him out onto his onto his outside deck, and he goes, "This is from Jerry Reed to Paul Franklin." He says, "Son, what the hell are you doing?" <laughs> I tried to call you. Nobody can get a hold of you. You've got a chance for a session career, and you're going to throw it away. And this was kind of Franklin's because t- he was touring with a band I, what was it called the Statesiders or something. And he says like this kind of snapped me out of it. Like I realized he because he was having so much fun on the road. Yeah. Which as a young man, like of that's course, the, right? Yeah, that's what you want. And uh, then he kind of realized like, okay, this the road's not where it's at, even as fun as it is. Um, because he he makes some comments of saying like it was basically it was like Animal House out on tour, you know. And, uh, yeah. And then he, he came back to sort of realize Jerry Reed snapped him out of it saying like, you know, you got to do the session work. This is where it's at. Everybody wants you playing on their records and nobody can get a hold of you. Right. And then it's like, it's something snapped in his head where he's like, or clicked in his head where he's like, Oh shit, hmm. <laughs> I'm in demand here. <laughs> yeah. Well, and that only continued. Um, I feel like I was going to talk about like style and uh like musicality but i feel like that might be better left to when we uh pull up some tracks yeah i think that would make sense so then at least we can instead of trying to describe it yeah because we, we know what it sounds like yeah, yeah. all right we'll do that <laughs> so uh then unless you have any comments or questions i'll just move straight to brent mason yeah well Brent hails from Ohio, uh, somewhere, I'm not sure exactly where, but he talks about Fort Wayne, Indiana a lot in in interviews, which is near the border, so I guess he's western Ohio, northwestern Ohio. 
his parents were weekend warrior musicians. Uh, they had some kind of full-time jobs outside the music industry, but were always playing in bands, gigging on weekends. Uh, there was instruments and recording gear in the basement. So Paul had been around guitars and strumming them since, like, playing with them, touching them since he was, like, five but I think he said that it was around eight years old that he really got started to try to learn how to play and more or less taught himself. Um, sounds like his high school was a little like mine, just a lot of partying and guitar playing and having fun being in a band, except uh, being way, way, way better than I was. <laughs> um, but when he graduated, he didn't have much of anything to do. He wasn't going to college and he got married early and maybe had a baby as well or maybe that was slightly after later than this but either way he needed to support a family and i think it was a gm factory i was reading or something that didn't work out that was in their town or nearby so he ended up at a toolbox factory a job that he didn't much like and was still very much dreaming of nashville uh, but needing the money and I guess he had an accident where he riveted his hand. Right through his thumb. Yeah, <laughs> and got scared that uh, a worse injury could happen and end any kind of guitar dreams he still has. So he then decided to pack it up and head to Nashville. In, in one interview I read, uh, it said that his mom uh, somehow reached out and connected with Paul Franklin after hearing some of his recordings, uh, sorry, after hearing... After hearing some of his recordings, he offered to introduce Brent to some of the Nashville community. Who knew that they'd become like musical twins on so much of the same 90s records? It's like Franklin on Steel and Mason on Telly over and over and over. <laughs> well, and I think this is sort of where some of that union stuff comes in because at the time, Paul Franklin uh, was part of the local, I guess it's the local 257 uh, union. So, I mean, I, I, yep. I, I guess that's... I'm, I wonder if maybe that's what made him a bit accessible uh, to Brent's mother or, or maybe that they had yeah. a connection or something. But w you often talk about musicians. Oh, yeah, maybe they were part of the same union from like their Yeah, I mean, jobs it, it could be, right? Like yeah. a lot of unions cross different, um, Yeah, whatever. Maybe we're onto something here. But it's also funny, like we talk about only in country music because most other musical genres where you hear like musicians talking about their parents it's like always horrible stories yeah we got uh paul franklin's dad building him steel guitars <laughs> brent mason's <laughs> mom reaching out to paul franklin yeah there's a lot of we're, let's break out that board again and get the web going yeah it's like the best country music parents are the best parents yeah it's true <laughs> Uh, so I think that's where it starts to get really cool for him because obviously he was very talented, but uh, like as a young man, really just riffing off of uh, the riffs, riffing off of the riffs that he's <laughs> learned from like all his heroes and uh, kind of playing along that way, not really having developed his own style yet. And it was apparently uh, a place called the Stagecoach um, in a sketchier part of Nashville on Murfreesboro Road. We've heard about this place a number of times. It seems like seems like it was. I don't know if it still exists, but like through the '80s and maybe into the '90s, uh, stories I hear about this is a little bit like what the blackboard would have been like in Bakersfield. Like, uh, I don't think there was chicken wire, but a pretty hardcore, rough honky tonk, but with lots of great music all the time, and so. Apparently, uh, his main gig before he was really getting sessions, uh, Brent was playing uh, at the stagecoach all the time and really trying to hone his sound there. 
And that's actually where I, th- I think they might have met somewhere briefly before, but Chet Atkins, quote unquote, discovered him there. Um, he he had started bringing other top guitar players also to check him out, guys like George Benson or Mark Knopfler and maybe it was like Albert Lee or Reggie Young. I don't know, but some, some heavy hitters. And uh, that's when he started to get in with Chet Atkins and, and sessions through, through that avenue, which is one of the <laughs> best, best people to like what you're doing, particularly if you're a guitar player. I have a good quote from that um, where Chet Atkins was coming down. He said, uh, uh, I don't need to read the whole thing, but he just said, uh, what he heard is uh, uh, from Chet Atkins, called him up saying, uh, I'm going to come down tomorrow, uh, tomorrow night to hear you play, and I'm bringing George Benson. Uh, and then um, he goes on to say, I was nervous not only because they were going to show up, but also because it was a pretty dangerous redneck bar. <laughs> so it's like yeah. he, he was worried about Chet Atkins coming down there. I, I tried to just Google stagecoach. I don't think uh, – I just got a bunch of stagecoach festival references, <laughs> but I, I tried so. to search the bar. I don't think it does anymore. But, uh, yeah, it, it's pretty cool. And then, the, again, it was his brother-in-law of the local Union 257 that got him the gig there too. So it's like that connection just keeps coming up. Yeah. Yeah, it's a, it, it's a, a theme that runs deep in the session community. Imagine if just regular musicians had a union, like not <laughs> session musicians. Yeah, I guess you'd have to have a structure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Anyways. Yeah, Anyways, that's... a cool thing that uh, I really like about Brent Mason is that he does pretty much all his solos off the cuff. Uh, in so many interviews I've read or listened to and asked about how he does it, he tries not to think about it too much beforehand or orchestrate or write it out. Uh, really wants to go by the feel. And th- there was an interesting way he was describing something I was listening to where it's like the solos where you're like almost about to fall down like that. Like I, I forget the way he phrased it, but like, you know, when you're like stumbling, like if, if you run too fast down a hill or something, you're, you're, you you think you're going to fall. You're still, you're still on your feet. You think you're going to fall, but then like you land and yeah. like, you're, you're good. That tension, <laughs> like if, if you're powering through this crazy solo and like you're staying on key, like in, but just barely, like, ju- just, just barely, barely. keeping it together. And then you find a way to like come out of it at the end and like, yeah. like resolve perfectly. <laughs> and then it's like, yes. And like that tension and that emotion that comes out in that happening, you, you can't fake that if you've like charted something or note for note written something out yeah. and orchestrated it. And for for that uh, that bad paraphrasing I did of that, I actually that, I felt that I really I, that I'm being serious. Like that was a really good I guess analogy. Like it, I don't know. I felt. I wish what I you could remember saying. the way. Okay, cool. Good. Yeah. I'm glad you got it your point across to me. I, I I wish I could remember the way he said it, but it, it was something along those lines where he likes that tension and sometimes like he'll screw something up and then he'll have to start over at least from halfway. And sometimes they'll have like half a solo that was done and then another half of a solo that's done and put it together in the editing room. Yeah. Rather than like pro tools, like every note for note, editing everything up. Sometimes you couldn't just spliced in two, but um, a lot, a a lot of them are like one takes and that, that seems to be the way he likes it. Something that, uh, I also really like about his style and uh, really what he was one of the pioneers of is uh, what he refers to as like a roadhouse type of honky tonk, 
which I like if you think about what the 90s brought to country music at the time the criticism would have been that it's it's sold out and it's going to rock which maybe we could talk about in the same way as like and we're not going to today but in another avenue could talk about almost how today it's too hip-hop or something but at Mm -hmm. the time it would have been too rock and what guys like Brent were bringing to the table was this like edgy Telecaster like country country guitar but with this like badass spank like, like pulling some edge. of that that West Coast vibe yeah like, like it's almost like doing and well that's exactly it it's that the only person previously doing it was Dwight Yoakam who's hugely inspired by Bakersfield almost like a Bakersfield 2.0 with this type of sound and he was the only guy doing it at that like mid late 80s but in California and then so in Nashville like Brent didn't invent it, but he was kind of riffing off of something that had previously existed in Bakersfield in one iteration. And then Dwight Yoakam was starting it up in a different iteration. And then Brent is really molding a number of styles and things. Like you hear a lot of like Reggie Young type double stops in his music, but then also a lot of that raw, edgy, uh, roadhouse honky tonk style of uh, Dwight Yoakam that wasn't just like directly plugged into the consoles that mm-hmm. you're recording off of amps and getting some of that raw edge. So he, he I, I think through what he was sounds like what he was doing at the stagecoach and the the time and place to sound extra nerdy, but the zeitgeist of the time, <laughs> uh, he built this new. You just hit a nerd alert. <laughs> That's right. Uh, he. who was part of building this 90s genre and style of music and uh yeah before i want to say it because i just remembered the story before we move too far away from the chet atkins uh thing showing up at the bar uh shortly after that and this is the story i I wanted to tell um chet atkins phoned him up and asked him to be on one of his albums and to record a song with mark knopfler on that album who you mentioned yep and uh, so the album was called Stay Tuned, and it was a compilation featuring a bunch of different guitar players. And the quote uh, from Brent was, uh, I remember going into the record store when it came out to see if my name was on it. Uh, <laughs> I thought I would sneak out and open the wrapper. Uh, just shows how broke he probably was back then. Yeah, and he couldn't uh, buy it. He yeah. had to sneak in and open it. <laughs> and then immediately he got busted, and they kicked him out, doubting that he was actually playing on the record. Yeah. It's okay, it's okay, I'm on this record. I just gotta say, <laughs> bullshit, get out of here, kid. And then another thing I was reading, I thought this was kind of genius, that you don't hear about too many session players doing, is that um, he tried, he was doing the songwriter stuff a lot, not necessarily because, like he was in a position where his songs could get pitched to an artist, yep. and they wouldn't necessarily go after his the song, but they would, they would wonder... Uh, they'd say, who's playing guitar on this? They, we need him to play on. Yeah, because he was on a lot of demos. Yeah. And songs that he wrote as well. Yeah. But then he, because so, he did, uh, like he was signed to a publishing deal. And so he was writing songs and playing on his own demos yeah. and then pitching those songs. And like, yeah, this song's all right. But who's that guitar player? Yeah, it's genius, <laughs> yeah. right? Because it's a double whammy. Like you're yeah. putting your music out there in two different ways. Like your word of mouth as a session player. Yeah. But then you're constantly just with your connections, firing these demos at people. And if you're good... In yeah. both directions, yeah. then it's like six to one, half dozen to the other. Well, yeah, oh, like, you oh. want to record my song? Oh, wait, you want me? Yeah. You want to record my song with oh, me? Well, I just oh, happen cool. to be here with my guitar. So, <laughs> <laughs> what, this whole thing? 
Yeah, that's great. He mm-hmm. seems like a, a genuinely smart. Um, yeah, and er- earlier you were mentioning about uh, it doesn't seem like he's slowing down with sessions, etc. I think he is slowing down with sessions, but not because he's done with music. He has a whole lot of things, it sounds like, on his plate. He has, like, um, like I don't know whether you call them partnerships or collaborations with various gear manufacturers like uh, Warbler pedals and um, like various stomp boxes and things like that. And he's also doing Skype guitar lessons online now. I read that. That's wild. So... Our lead singer, and who also is a lead guitar player, my buddy Ben, he has done a lesson with Paul Franklin. Or, what is sorry, that? not Paul Franklin, uh, Brent Mason, a couple of years ago. What does that cost you? Uh, I, I can't remember, but I think it was in and around like 100 or 150 bucks for like an, an hour. hour. I, yeah. figured, I thought it actually might be more, but... Yeah, it's, it's, it sounds like it's pretty reasonable price, and... I feel like he probably has a lot of people like, um, could you teach me how to play Chattahoochee, Mr. Mason? <laughs> well, what I was reading is that he, he doesn't, like he won't work with beginners. Like he right. it has to be someone who's got, and not even just like someone who's decent, like a good guitar player. Right. He yeah. will work with, so I think he probably is doing it for a bit of the love of the game too. Yeah. Oh, hundred percent. Like I don't think he needs that. No, no, no. 50 bucks an hour or whatever it is. <laughs> He's got like probably the most gold records on the wall yeah. of any session musician yeah it sounds like he's just he's having fun with it yeah uh cool uh let's get to the other two which uh are you have done the research for (laughs) the other two yeah (laughs) let's get to the other two so i don't need to go through my list john hobbs and (laughs) michael rhodes i don't need to go through my list of brent mason's like movie soundtracks and commercial jingles no 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 (laughs) we don't have time for that (laughs) okay that'll push us into two-parter if you do that (laughs) So yeah, we'll go. We'll do John Hobbs. Um, before we get uh, too much into his history, um, I just wanted to set the tone a little bit uh, on a quote I found from John Hobbs, which immediately made me really love this guy because it's something that I feel like I've kind of said numerous times when people ask me um, about how I like such a wide variety of like genres of music. And uh, his quote was, "I like all kinds of music. I don't really uh, make a big distinction. It's always hard for me to understand why somebody goes, I hate all country music or I hate all heavy metal." Uh, you can find examples in any genre of great mus- musicianship and writing and communication, which I thought was really cool. Yeah. Um, so yeah, as I'm reading this also, I, I realize that I've got kind of the West Coast guys and you've got kind of, I don't know, oh, yeah, called the, the Midwest, Midwest yeah, yeah. I guess. Um, but yeah, so similar to Eddie Bayer's, Hobbs was a native of California, uh, Long Beach specifically, and he began his career there as a session piano player. Uh, however, starting in the 80s, uh, he was flying to Nashville regularly to play sessions there. Um, he did this for almost a decade, the flying back and forth, before making his final move to Nashville. Uh, his take on Nashville and reasons for moving out there are very similar to Bears as well. Uh, he says, most uh, music people fall in love with Nashville because it, it's so much about the music. The thing about Nashville is there's a sense of community here among music people that I never felt in Los Angeles. To some respect, it's geographical. But uh, most of the music business is contained in three long blocks. It has the feeling of, of a college campus. Uh, the business has changed in L.A. I was doing a lot of synthesizer stuff and a lot of commercials where my friends in Nashville were getting paid a lot of money to sit in uh, pretty rooms and play with the band. They were getting to play with other musicians. So it goes back to the stuff we were saying about Bears and that, that L.A. scene kind of drying up for the crea- creativity side of session players. Like It was more just either bands or as a session player you could get you know, work in the industry is for movies or soundtracks and things like that. Um, one other throwback is when he was growing up, 
and this is what I was mentioning earlier when I said that uh, he was, says that studio musicians weren't often credited uh, for their play, playing on the track, so he, they didn't, the public didn't know. So he says it wasn't until later that he came to realize that uh, Hargis Pig Robbins, who was part of the Nashville A-Team, was one of his biggest influences. So he'd been listening to this guy forever, and he had no idea who he was actually listening to. Um, another good quote from Hobbs, which reminds me of something that uh, you said, actually, when we were doing uh, that interview with uh, Del Barber the other week, which also check out that episode. It was a great interview. Um, he says, radio back then was very eclectic. Uh, you heard country music, you heard R&B music, you heard uh, the beginnings of rock and roll and the British invasion. Uh, music quite wasn't uh, quite as pigeonholed back then, which was cool. And you were kind of talking about that, how it wasn't, you just didn't get like just the specific like, you know, genres. It was kind of all over the map. You could hear different things side to side, which was cool. You'd hear various types of music on the radio. Yeah, I don't think that's exactly the point I was making in that interview, but that is definitely true. The sentiment was there, okay? It's true. I was yeah, trying to it, just do a quick it wasn't throwback. corporately. Yeah, yeah, totally, totally. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, his first uh, union contract session involved a 1969 recording by uh, pop singer Frankie Lane. Uh, he recorded with Kenny Rogers. Um, this led to him joining a pop group as a touring member at age 19. Uh, a funny story I'll just tell it quickly he worked with uh, then producer Phil Spector I don't know much about Phil Spector but I've heard a lot about him and this was on a letter, Leonard Cohen session and uh, he quit shortly there after joining the session because Phil Spector kept running around waving a loaded handgun in the studio yeah that sounds about what everybody's <laughs> heard about Phil yeah. Spector <laughs> so he said I quit because I was scared um, so yeah he first started uh, Hobbs first started working with country artists while playing in the house band at the Palomino Club uh, LA night spot where musicians often gathered um, he played with Freddie Fender, Tom T. Hall, and uh, cool. Yeah, so that's that's legit. That is pretty Tom legit. Tom T. Hall. Mm-hmm. And then uh, he moved on to uh, playing with uh, Tanya Tucker. He played on her album TNT. In the early '80s, he recorded with Merle Haggard uh, for a movie soundtrack called Bronco Billy, which was starring Clint Eastwood. But he also played on Haggard's hit Misery and Gin, which I think is you know that that piano intro. Yeah, is uh, pretty iconic. So I think we're gonna hear that later. Yeah, we definitely should put that on. And then, yeah, he began recording heavily in Nashville by the mid-80s, being invited there by Jimmy Bowen, who, again, we've talked about before. He was one of the top execs at MCA. Um, He was hired to play an album by Reba McIntyre, George Strait, Hank Williams Jr. I noticed a lot of these guys played with Hank Jr. on a lot of different Hank Jr. albums. Yeah, he was uh, pretty prolific for, like, through mid-70s through mid-80s. Yep. And in the 90s, he went on to play, Hobbs went on to play with Brooks and Dunn. Uh, I meant Hank Jr., but... Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's... Yeah, I understand what you mean. Yeah, um, sorry. Carry on. <laughs> he was, yeah, he was quite prolific. I don't think either of us are big fans of Hank Jr., which is no, why I really. kind of just rolled past it. Yeah, I, I like, like, a handful of his songs, yeah. and I, I don't think I realize how big of a career he had and how big of a stadium... He was, like, one of the first stadium acts. Yeah. Like, maybe not stadium, arena acts. And he he was big time, and I like I can't get much before like Country Boy will survive and like Family Tradition, and like I, I can't think of that many more tunes by him. Well, and I think he's, I mean, correct me, but I think he's one of the ones that started bringing that like that rock edge to hundred like, percent uh, to totally. it. And yep. Yeah, anyways, we don't need to go too far into that, but we digress again. We digress. Yeah, so uh, in the nineties, he was playing with Brooks and Dundee and Carter, Kenny Chesney, uh, Patty Loveless, Martina McBride. Oh, he and, played uh, on Brooks and Dunn. Yeah. Oh, cool. And then he also was a, a producer. He co-produced Vince Gill's last two albums, including uh, that last four-disc set these days, uh, Leanne Rhymes' uh, 2011 release, 
Um, but yeah, I didn't realize at that point that he was also producing as well. Hmm. So yeah, he's been on over almost 1200 albums wow. spanning from the sixties to up until 2019. Yeah. Uh, you know, he was on Shania Twain's come on over. He was on a BB King album again. Does Fort Worth ever cross your mind <laughs> on an Olivia Newton John album? Oh boy. And then I don't know. Do you remember that song from the sixties surfing around the world? No. Okay. Well, if you hear it, you'll know it. You'll I remember it. Surfing USA. Yeah, it's not that. But if if I play it for you, it's you'll a remember sequel. It. No, it's this it was released in the sixties. We're gonna see your Surfing USA. <laughs> We're gonna raise you one surfing around the world. <laughs> Anyways, he played on that song. Who who sang it? Uh, that was Bruce Johnston. I also don't know who that is. No, I I recognize the name of the song, but I didn't the right. artist. So, anyways, I guess that brings us to uh, Michael Rhodes, who is the uh, bass player. Uh, Michael Rhodes, I would say, was the most difficult person I researched on this episode because there's not a lot out there. There's a <laughs> ton of very modern, like, bass player magazine interviews with him because he's very, like, he plays in a lot of bands around Nashville and he, he's very current. Um, his, I think back then it was more just, he was just playing bass. Like, there wasn't... And that's the interesting thing about bass as opposed to, like, lead guitar or pedal steel or even drums is you rarely, particularly in country music... Uh, it's it's never up front or it's rarely up front it's 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 mixed into the mix yeah and <clears throat> like a sign of a good bass player is someone with good rhythm good intonation and good feel but it's not necessarily super flashy so like i don't think you're gonna find like tons of like like i, I think like when michael you th- rhodes fanatics like <laughs> well maybe 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 in the bass world but i think like thinking of it from a guitar perspective a guitar world perspective you think of like in the rock world people like flea from red hot chili peppers or something that are like famous bassists or mm-hmm. sting like well, i guess maybe he's only famous because he sang and played bass but these people who do like very crazy funk things or like elaborate like bass solos and that's great. That's cool. But that's not really a thing in country music so much. Like maybe for a turnaround or like a little outro or something or underneath a solo. But it's really more about keeping it steady and yeah, just being, I don't know, consistent. Yeah, you're holding it down, but you're always in the background kind of thing. Exactly. Yeah. Like you're a little lost in the mix. Yeah. But if you weren't you can there. can feel you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. If you weren't there, you'd know it. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, Rhodes was born in 1953. He was born in Monroe, Louisiana. Um, so obviously, you know, Cajun country, blues was all part of his, his upbringing. Uh, he eventually, uh, after he started landing his first kind of gigs, um, he eventually moved to Austin, Texas. Uh, he played with a bunch of different bands, you know, gaining experience, all that kind of stuff. Uh, he eventually, after that, about four years later, moved to Memphis, Tennessee. And that's at that point, he started working with uh, Charlie Rich's son, Alan Rich. Who w- one second. When he was in Austin, what era was that? Would that have been like uh, Waylon s- Willie, Armadillo? Early 70s. Kind of? Okay. Yeah, yeah. So he might, yeah. So I think we'll see that on some of Armadillo his. World Headquarters. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, after he connected up with Charlie Rich's uh, son, he eventually moved to Nashville, spent some time there as a demo musician and then as a session player. Uh, he lent his bass talents to a lot of different artists. And I think the list I have here, I'm just going to rhyme off a few, but I, f- I feel like he had kind of the widest um, variety of, of stylings of music, genres of music. He jumped all over the map. Mm-hmm. And uh, But yeah, tons of country artists, uh, Tanya Tucker, Reba McIntyre, Randy Travis, Faith Hill, Dolly Parton. 
Um, but then you, you know, you get into, you know, he's been on some very recent stuff too. Like I was telling you, he was on a Granger Smith album. Um, right. He played a on recent uh, Granger Smith or an early Granger Smith. I don't know. I think it was like 2011 or something. It was called four by four. Oh yeah. That's not a good one. He played on again with Alan Jackson. Don't rock the jukebox. Keith Whiteley. Sorry. I don't mean to say that that's not a good one <laughs> in a knock to, uh, Michael Rhodes whatsoever. <laughs> no, we I, just went I through an evolution saying. of like having a small online fight with uh, Granger Smith and his music now that is not at all country, but very surprisingly, his like he started in the late 90s and early 2000s, and he has a couple like country, country records out there. But when you see the evolution or maybe rather de-evolution, devolution of his music, it's like, I don't know. Yeah, I don't think we need to get back. Yeah, yeah we're not going to. Yeah, let's. <laughs> still a hot hot button <laughs> issue let's let's keep let's let's keep it rolling sorry i um, digress w- what i read mostly though about michael rhodes was just a lot of very recent stuff where it's like he's a super active member of the national music community like any I, i'd be surprised honestly if between the two of us one of us hasn't seen him on a stage somewhere in nashville that's not more in the honky tonks like but he's playing with you know a lot of different probably on the opry and yeah not so much that i think he's playing just with a lot of kind of local bands is he, uh, not is in, he part of um, the Time Jumpers? No, okay. he he's his main gig right now is he's playing with Joe Bonamassa. No idea who that is. He's a pretty big bluesy uh, oh, okay. kind of figure. Like All he right. he tours quite a bit. Um, I think he's played here at Blues Fest a bunch. Of, he plays big festivals and and pretty big shows. Cool. Uh, Joe Bonamassa, and uh, and then he's got I guess in his downtime, uh, Michael Rhodes just does a lot of stuff with like local bands that. They're his bands kind of thing, like right. bands that he regu- regularly plays with, not so much just sitting in or that kind of right, thing. Right. So I think he's more just, you know, probably living off all of his residuals, his residuals and, and doing what's what he wants to do musically. Yeah. But apparently he's just a real cool guy, very accessible. <laughs> Making uh, millions on residuals and then like chugging <laughs> beers with high school kids <laughs> in like the back alley, <laughs> jamming out in a garage band. Right? Isn't that the life? That is the life. A good quote I had from him was... Uh, and it was I, again. I just pulled this out of like I, I got into a bit of an inter- reading an interview about him or with him from a bass player magazine. And it was just said, uh, "My advice for up and coming players is to shut up and listen. Music music is like having a conversation. You have to listen for the most part. The best session players are the ones who are good listeners and can take suggestions. You have to leave your ego out of it. Do what is asked of you, and don't slow the process down." So I thought that was pretty cool. That you know, mm-hmm. it's a really good way of putting it. Right? That it's what was the bass magazine called? I don't remember. Bass life. <laughs> yeah, bass player daily. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all, there's like, there are a dime a dozen, all those like yeah. the drummer, the bass, the guitar player. There's like a hundred different iterate, hundred different iterations of the yeah. titles. <laughs> yeah. Guitar world, bass life. Yeah. <laughs> all right. So I, I think that's about all I have on uh, Michael Rhodes, which kind of wraps us up on uh, our in-depth on these guys. W- where do you, where do you want to go from here? Do you want to try and listen to some stuff? Yeah. See if we can get this working. Yeah. Yeah. Let's, um, an, an, another disclaimer to the record companies, please do not come after us for uh, taking these down or royalties. We are hoping to do this in a, a fun and educational and conversational, critical type of way. Um, but if we have to, we will. That's why we put it on the end, because we don't want to upset anybody. We're good Canadians. We don't want to <laughs> upset anybody there, eh? <laughs> yeah, so I don't, I don't know. Where, actually, you know what? Before we start into that, something I thought might do and actually maybe it'll be our segue into that something that when i 
I always thought he was part of the players because I've I've heard of the players for years and I knew it was roughly speaking like Paul Franklin, Brent Mason, Eddie Bears. But I had always thought Stuart Duncan was part of that group. And apparently he's not. He did not get an award. He's not part of this. But in terms of all of these songs, like there was other great fiddle players for sure through the 90s and the 2000s. But I feel like the proportion of which... Paul Franklin plays steel through that era and Brent Mason plays guitar through that era. I feel like Stuart Duncan is the fiddle player of that era. And he, I don't know, he, he wasn't part of it. And I don't want to imply that he should be part of it, but I feel like a country group or like uh, the players, like a session group of country players should include a fiddle player. I'm not sure why they don't. Maybe there's a good reason for this. Maybe he didn't want to be. I don't know. But you look like you're about to say something. Oh, I was, all I was going to say is like, as I'm, as we're sitting here, as we're talking, as I'm scrolling through the all music creds, like there's a lot of crossover and there's a lot of uh, not crossover. Like I'm looking at a lot of the artists and they share you know, a lot of similar artists that they've played on between the players um, and between Stuart Duncan. But I'm also seeing that having scrolled through these all music credits for pretty much every one of these artists consistently over the last week, um, I feel like I'm starting to recognize the albums that they all played on. And it doesn't seem like there's much crossover album wise, like they were ever in the same place at the same time. I'm 100% positive it happened, but I don't know that it happened that much. Not for all of them. Yeah. But like particularly now that I'm also mentioning Stuart Duncan, there is a shit ton, like a metric shit ton of albums that Stuart Duncan, Paul Franklin, and Brent Mason are all on. Yeah, like the Alan Jackson stuff, the George Strait stuff. Yeah, uh, absolutely. For sure. And and so much more. Like, I don't know who, I'm not looking at the credits, but like Tim McGraw's, Joe D. Messina's, like Leanne Womack's, all kinds of stuff. Like they're, they're, they're all over all the top. Shania Twain's, like they're... They're all over everything. But anyways, um, a, a, I think a nice little nod to him might be, to Stuart Duncan might be a nice way to start this out, only because he's also going to pop up in a number of the other songs that we are going to reference as, as Fiddle comes up. Every time. Every time I hear that. Mm. Her telephone rang about a quarter to nine. She heard his voice on the other end of the line. She wondered what was wrong this time. She never knew what his calls might bring. With a cowboy like him, it could be anything. She always expected the worst One of my favorite fiddle lines of all time I feel like we're committing country music sacrilege By even talking over this he track said it's cold <laughs> out here and I'm all alone. Anyways, we're not going to listen to all of it But that's, uh, I think, a really great example of Stuart Duncan at what I think is his finest You, Sean, would very much appreciate him from other angles. Not that you don't appreciate that, but... Well, I like that, like, it was... Sometimes it should be understated, right? Just a beautiful, you know, just some beautiful fiddle playing that just, like, it makes you... I don't know. That whole song, that song's made by that that intro. Yeah, I totally agree. That's... 
that's easily one of my favorite George songs, one of my favorite songs of the 90s, and maybe even one of my all-time favorite country songs. And it is so much made by Stuart Duncan and that like perfect fiddle line. You know what else he's on? Well, I think I think I know where you're going to jump to. Where am I going to go? Are you going to go to that that Tyler Childers song? I am. Yeah, and that now we're getting into like that hot shit fiddle, you know? Like Yeah, 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 <laughs> exactly. Cuz that that was his beginning was bluegrass. Yeah. So like the Country Squire album has has Stuart Duncan all over so it. So h- how much time are we jumping here in years from when he recorded 1996 to 2019. Okay. And 96 wasn't the beginning. I think like well, yeah. late 80s early 90s was his beginning, but uh Kind kind of the same era as like Brent Mason, Paul Franklin, maybe maybe a little bit younger. Um, what do, what do you, what do you want to do next? Well, let's listen to that children's song. I don't have that queued up. Oh, thought that's what you're gonna put on. No, I was just telling you that to tease you. Slash, we don't want to spend too much time on him because he's not actually one of the players, quote unquote. <laughs> um, Stuart Duncan. Yeah, he started. Looks like his first credits start to pop up in the seventies. Um, oh wow. Okay. So he's, yeah, he's been not a ton through like late seventies and then quite a bit late eighties. Uh, yeah. So when we're talking about, um, session players and how they work, I found this really cool clip that I want to play. It's a little bit grainy volume because this is, uh, coming in a feed off YouTube, but, uh, just, just give this a little listen. (laughs) Now, it is one of your most, your most famous licks that Mm -hmm. you really, really like to play. Uh, this is a TV interview uh, from, it looks very 90s, early 90s, judging by the aspect ratio of the <laughs> screen and the size of the hair and the shoulder pads on the suits. It but sounds like a home shopping network. Uh, it does now you're like telling a, me I'm going to get three of these for the price of one? <laughs> it, it's a little bit like that. Uh, <laughs> it definitely looks like it on the set, but uh, it's an interview with Brent Mason. We like to play. Um. Okay. That people would easily recognize. All right. Well, okay. here's one. Here's All right, one. Got it. See if you can recognize this. Now, brought in and you put this down on the track for like Alan Jackson and then his band, they learned the song yeah, that learned. you basically helped create in the studio. Right. right. Yeah. Yeah. We're in the studio. And we're just. Basically, we come up with some licks. You know, he said, give me some kind of a Cajun-y lick, so I'll, I'll play a little bit of uh, this. And Alan and I sat down together, and we come up with that, you know. I had a lot of extra notes in it that Alan made me take out. But, uh, <laughs> he said, oh, I think that's too many notes. You're showing so. off a little bit too much. Well, tell yeah, yeah so I, I simplified it a little bit, and it came out like that. That's amazing. That is simplified. Well, I know there are a lot of people out there, including me, who are just trying to learn how to play the guitar. Is that like Good Morning Nashville or it, something? Actually, it looks like it. I don't know <laughs> what it is. Uh, it says TNN, so it's uh, like the Nashville network, yeah. but it definitely looks like a morning show type <laughs> of set. They've got their clipboards and like, oh, tell me, Brent. Yeah. So what's a One of those shows musician? we have to show up at 4.30 in the morning for. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> Sitting there with a Stratocaster on his lap on yeah. the stool. Act like you're awake. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Act like you weren't out till three in the morning playing at some bar. So if you don't know what that was, uh, you shouldn't be listening to this podcast. <laughs> Here's your, you're on the wrong podcast. This is what, uh, what he was getting at. Um, one of the most famous songs of the 90s, and he came up with this riff. This is what we're talking about earlier when I mentioned my barber and thinking that Alan Jackson is playing these riffs and you just heard it from the man himself of how he does it and this is what it came out with 
not. Like, I need another beer to just. I have a half beer, but I want to crack another beer just to. You got to build the pyramid of cans yeah. in the pale moonlight. Well, way down yonder on the Chattahoochee, it gets hotter than a hoochie coochie. Yeah, so everybody knows what that is. And that's how those type of licks get uh, created. You can't just shut off Chattahoochee, man. I've got to. We, we, We're going to get so many complaints over that. I know. <laughs> it's better than the legal complaints if we keep playing the entirety of the that's, song. That's fair. That's fair. <laughs> um, so I think a good another good place to look for the style of these guys, because like, if, if you're listening to that, you can hear that, like, he was talking about a bit of a Cajun-y vibe to what he was doing there, that like slidey, slightly swampy Cajun-y thing. But there's also like a raw, um, like roadhouse honky-tonkness to it. And I don't think there is a better song in all of 90s country to A, accentuate what roadhouse honky-tonk sounds like, what 90s country came to be, and also probably the very best song to understand Brent Mason's uh, playing style on it. And uh, also Paul Franklin is on this. And I think, I'm not sure, maybe you can check the credits if Stuart Duncan is the fiddle on this. And I think he might be. Uh, But this one's called, this is by Alan Jackson, I Don't Even Know Your Name. And this is one of the uh, recordings where we were talking about earlier that Brent on the guitar did all in, I think the first one he did all in one take and the second solo he had to do in two takes. So it's spliced together of two separate recordings and it's, it, it, it's perfect. And just, just, just this. Well, I was sitting in a roadhouse down on highway 41. He's going there, and you just hear that like spanking Kelly. Of course, you weren't my waitress. Mine was missing her front tooth. So I flagged you down for coffee, but I couldn't say a thing. But I'm in love with you, baby, and I don't even know your name. I'm in love with you, baby. I don't even know your name. I've never been too good at all those sexual games. So maybe it's just better if we leave it this way. I'm in love with you, baby, and I don't even know your name. Brent Mason's first solo. So I ordered straight tequila. And I feel like right there, that first solo is one of those things he's talking about where it's just like the tension of like the one take rawness of you're making up as you go on the fly and like almost fucking up, almost yeah. falling apart. And then just like, doop, 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 <laughs> like on the end, like just it's finish it like perfectly. It's, it's like, fuck, yes, like done, take, yeah. that's it right there. <laughs> like drop the guitar. Exactly. Leave. Walk out. And it's like, that's it. It's not going to get better than that. <laughs> Actually, a great song that I think similar to this Lesser known, but pretty concisely, I think, sums up. Th- this one came out in the mid-90s, I want to say 95, 96. It was a George Jones record, a lesser George, lesser known George Jones record uh, with T- Tammy Wynette uh, called One. But the track on there, it was never a big hit, but it's an old love thing. I don't know. For My Money is one of the best 
90s country songs there is and it, it's so interesting because it is like seven 60s and 70s artists like Tammy Wynette and George Jones but they're doing 90s country sound it's also produced by Tony Brown George Strait's producer so it's got this modern 90s honky-tonk roadhouse country sound but they're also bringing in like the choir backgrounds that are very much a nod to Tammy Wynette and George Jones, like 1970s careers, Nashville Sounds careers. But just the way this starts and where, where the guitar picks up and it's all Brent Mason and then trading off into the steel with Paul Franklin, it's just like, it's, it's, it's perfect. <laughs> an old love thing Holding hands down at the mall Still dancing down at the hall Still hugging cause after all It's an old love thing Young hearts Stereotypical perfect 90s What uh, What are you thinking? Uh, I don't know I don't have the list You're the one man in the list So I mean you're, you're steering this shit man um maybe just to maybe finish up on the 90s we do have to listen to misery and gin though That's we will I, yeah i'm thinking about jumping back to the 80s but just a, a last little bit of so many of these iconic things that they were both on uh everybody knows this little riff oh yeah so that's both pedal steel and Telecaster going at the same time. Then they switch it up and trade it up. the end inside. Fools are kind of blind. Thought everything was going all right. But I was running out of time. Cause you had one foot out the door. I think we fast forward a bit here. Write this down. Right, like the, the mixing the back and forth just like totally and something that I I've been thinking about this a lot more in preparation for this episode is that oh yeah there's like a target with some steel something I've been thinking about a lot more especially in preparation for this episode is when listening to George Strait versus Alan Jackson, which the two of them were on so many of these records. Jo George Strait has more of a Western swing to all of his music, and that is heavy pedal steel and fiddles. They're more up front. The guitar, apart from a few songs that really feature it, it gets buried in the mix a little bit more. And when you hear Alan Jackson, it's like the guitar and the pedal steel and the fiddle have like equal bearing. Mm -hmm. Like, Alan Jackson definitely has a more roadhouse, rockier edge to his country, twangier guitar, whereas George Strait, it's, it's a little bit more fiddle and pedal steel focused. And uh, the while there's great guitar in it, a lot of it often, at least through the mid of the song, just kind of gets often buried in the mix a little bit. So uh, do you, um, you want to stay on 
some of the steel and guitar stuff or you want to give a little love to john hobbs and get into some of the piano yeah uh, let's tracks? do that um which one do you want to do first well since we talked about misery and gin and really we really just need to listen to the intro there to get the the feel for it why don't we do that one Memories and drinks don't mix too well Jukebox records don't play those wedding bells Who's the steel player on this? Looking at the world yeah, We, we should probably should have looked all this stuff up Yeah, all maybe We kind of singularly focused on each player that we were talking about yeah. song. <laughs> right there, that's it Tonight I need that woman again. Why stop there? <laughs> there it is. <laughs> I love that fiddle too. Oh, now yeah. we're supposed to be focusing the piano right now, but that <laughs> uh, I know, but that fiddle. And you know, it's that thing like with keys, with piano, it's like Again, you don't want it in your face necessarily, but it's like for little fills like that, and it's, it's in there. intros, iconic intros. Yeah, and if it wasn't there, you'd know it wasn't there. Hundred yeah. percent. That's I can't imagine that song being played any other way. Can we? Uh, I don't know if you queued this one up, but that recent Willie song, that "Ride Me Back Home," because I think sure it's did. got a pretty cool intro too. I'm not. I think it's the intro. Yeah. The intro. He rode into battle. Me see where back to Yeah, here it comes. I got a small place up in the foothills where green grass Beautiful. is precious yeah. as gold. And this is like super recent, Willie. 2019. Yeah. And I'm glad I we're we're spanning because it really shows longevity of these guys, right? And relevancy, like. The last song, Fort Worth, Ever Cross Your Mind, was 1984. Yeah, and some of this, not necessarily what we're listening to, but some of the stuff they played on, which was still pretty relevant songs, was 60s, 70s, all the way up to 2019. Like, Yeah. It's impressive. It's very impressive. Absolutely. Maybe you should have queued up that Purgatory song by now. <laughs> Maybe we'll end on that. <laughs> Where do you want to go? What are you thinking? I'm thinking... It's hard to pick a favorite, like when you when when you're a player of an instrument, it's it's hard to pick your favorite solo ever. But I think one of the most masterful examples of pedal steel playing, in just like that really emotional gripping type of style, is on Leanne Womack's "I May Hate Myself in the Morning." This is Paul Franklin uh, throwing down one of my favorite solos of all time. I may hate myself in the morning. I'm gonna love you tonight. Well, nope. That's the fiddle. But the steel is about to come in. Nothing wrong with the fiddle solo. Oh, it's great fiddle. I don't care who played it.
It almost fit. Yeah, it's <laughs> Skype ping. Um, I know we're supposed to be talking through these, and we said we're going to discuss, but it's like again, it's some country music sacrilege to talk over a steel. I think I've slapped people for talking over a steel solo. Yeah, yeah, you know what? You're right. <laughs> fun example might be something else that's brand new um both paul franklin and brent mason are on this record so i only assume they're both on this song because it sounds stylistically for them the new justin moore record is so good i really like that guy and uh why we drink definitely some reason the eq is a little off balance yeah, that steel's a little low in the mix steel's a little low in the mix we're first time we've really done music on the show so yeah we're playing off spotify so it should be balanced but uh off of our paid for spotify account <laughs> so hopefully that counts for something yeah. in this but uh but it gets the point yeah they uh i'm not sure why that that's that that should be pretty balanced eq but the steel was a little quiet in the mix there i'm not sure why uh, we'll get it well um you know, I think, actually, I think another fun example would be something else that is uh, pretty brand new. And it looks like I didn't even put it in to queue it up. Yeah. Well, what do you say? I mean, I gotta, I gotta be on a plane in about what six hours. So, how about we uh, listen to that fiddle song I wanted to hear, and then we uh, maybe wrap it up for the night. One more thing before the fiddle song. Oh God, I'm gonna be here all night. If I miss my flight, Andrew, you can blame it on honky tonk. <laughs> you know, I'd, I'd rather be sitting here listening to honky tonk and drinking beer than getting on that flight. Yeah, it's got, the, and this is one of the rare examples of George Strait where it's more of a guitar driven song. The steel's a little more buried in the mix there, but like with this type of intro, like that's Brent Mason. Yeah. Like when you compare that back to. Build in a style. Or back to. All different. 
but, but same. all very much the same. I think one more thing might be fun to go out on. This is uh, Easton Corbin from, what, what year was this record? Late, late 2000s? No, this would have been all over the road. What was that, like 2012, 2013? So this is both Paul Franklin and uh, Brent Mason. And I love the way they're just trading off. And you very much hear their styles, like very much Brent Mason and Paul Franklin's signature sounds in this outro of uh, Tulsa, Texas from Easton Corbin. Anna, if you want to find me, you can find me in Tulsa, Texas. Back to Brent. Now Paul. All right, folks, we're way over time, <laughs> as is tradition. <laughs> Thanks for hanging out with us. And uh, please, if you like what you hear, uh, take a visit to Apple Podcasts, whether or not that's where you get your podcasts or not. It would really help us out if you uh, wrote us a little review and gave us a rating. Get on to the Instagram. Check us out. Yeah, we're at Country Country Music, and we are on the Twitter machine at Country underscore Podcast. You got it. I remembered it this time, and I was going to say it. <laughs> you have your phone out. You were going to read exactly what it was. I remember. How do you it. know? Yeah. How do you know? Maybe I'm looking at something else on my phone. <laughs> yes. I was at a pornography store buying Mike pornography. pornography. <laughs> at the last minute with a Simpsons yes. reference. And we're out. Mic drop. Country, country music.